Welcome to New Hope Fellowship Online. I am Elder Tony Acampa, and I'm excited that you are tuning into this message. I pray that it helps you grow in your walk with Christ and encourages you to dive deeper into God's Word. For more information on who we are as a church, I'd like to encourage you to visit nhfchurch.org. If you are interested in partnering with us financially so we can continue to share the gospel message with those around us, visit nhfchurch.org and click on Give. Again, thank you for being here and for listening. I hope you enjoy this message. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John, as we mentioned last week, is one of the four Gospels. He's actually written after the other three. And most of John's Gospel is not found in the other three. And that's intentional because John is bringing up new things. He wants us to see God and wants us to see Jesus in a way that's different from the other three. Not that they're completely different. They're talking about two different gods. They're not. It's one and the same. Think of an eyewitness account of if there's an accident on the road and people see it from different angles. That's what you get with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Someone's perspective at a different angle. They're all telling the same story. They're telling it from a different vantage point. John is older. He's wizened from life experience. And so he's saying, if I had one thing that I could communicate before I pass from this earth, the last apostle who walked with Jesus, what would he want to tell us? And that's what you find in John is his immense kind of life as I walked with Jesus, he didn't comprehend everything that Jesus did. In fact, it says that in the Gospels, they didn't comprehend it until after Jesus taught them after his resurrection of all of these things. And John is reflecting back and saying, wait, I've seen things. I want to communicate these things to you. And the main premise is actually John 20, that you may know and believe in Jesus Christ and find life. His whole premise in writing this is that you can believe in who Jesus is. And last week we looked at the immensity of who God is, that he was in the beginning was the word. That's what the whole bumper's about. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. He's saying God was in the beginning with the word. Who is the word? Jesus is the word. He was in the beginning. All things were created by him and through him. And so Jesus is not just some good guy or good teacher or good example. No, he's God himself. He's God incarnate in human flesh, which we'll get to as we roll through John so that he can associate with you and I. The same teenage years, awkward, that we went through, guess what? Jesus also went through. Some of the same heartbreak and disappointment that you and I have experienced, he has experienced And that's part of his human nature mixed with his full deity. And that is explained later. But we're kind of jumping into this concept of taste and see. We're moving at a breakneck pace, meaning we're not getting out of chapter one today. Some of you laugh and, yeah, that's true. We're moving really slow. But if you want to hear kind of a preview of chapter two, I actually preached on Christmas Day on chapter two. So I'm like, well, what's the point of going back there? Let's keep in chapter one. And so if we start in chapter one, verse 19, This says, this is John's testimony when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and pause. Now we're going to go backwards because we got to understand a little bit of something here that in this verse that we actually went through last week, there's something here because John doesn't explain John. John, the apostle, doesn't share anything about who is this John the Baptist. And if we were to jump backwards, if we go to Luke in chapter 1 and starting in verse 15, it says this. For he will be, and this is speaking of in the temple time, um, John's father was a Levite. And his Levite, as a father, 
He was in the priesthood, which meant that he was supposed to have kids. He's supposed to be kind of this signature leader. So John's dad has no kids. Him and his wife, they're without kids. So it's his turn in the temple in Luke 1. And as he's in the temple doing his thing, he goes in and he sees an angel, verse 13 of chapter 1. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear a son and you will name him John. There will be joy and delight for you and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Now, he's old. So after this takes place, I'm going to quickly recap, is that he won't believe. He will look and say, this doesn't, this isn't true. I'm too old. And the angel says, because you won't believe, your tongue's going to be tied pretty much. You're not going to be able to speak until he's born, which happens. So bear this in mind, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will never drink wine or beer. So all that means is that he's taken a Nazarite vow. If you're familiar with church, familiar with Sunday school, there's a book called Judges in the Old Testament. One of the most famous judges is Samson. Samson took a Nazarite vow. The secret to Samson's strength was his hair. He never cut his hair. So his hair was pretty much, could be down to his ankles. That was braided and put up and all that. But he had a ton of hair, and he never drank wine. He never drank beer. So here, vice versa, same thing. The angel is saying, he's going to be great in the sight of the Lord. He'll never drink wine or beer, but he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, which is something that is also different in the sense that in the Old Testament, where did the Holy Spirit reside? In the New Testament, Jesus comes. He is God himself, three in one. He dies, he resurrects. If you're a Christian, the moment you believe, you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. That is the sign of your promised inheritance into heaven. In the Old Testament, Jesus hasn't come. Jesus isn't there yet. The Holy Spirit is not present for everyone. The only people anointed with the Holy Spirit were then the prophets. And sometimes you had David the kings. And so here he's saying from John's get-go, He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. Here's the key. He will turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. That's key. If you want to highlight, circle that. And, and to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous and make ready, make ready for the Lord a prepared people. So Luke describes who this John character is. John says, you've already read Luke, so you don't need to know about him. But we need to know this for just a moment as to what I'm going to point out. So this is foreknowledge. This is what's going to, John the Baptist is going to come. When you read in Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament before the New, it says this. 400 years of silence after this. God speaks through a prophet, then there's 400 years of just nothing. Remember the instructions of Moses, my servant, the statutes and ordinances I commanded him at Horeb. So the mountain of God back in the Exodus period. Look, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. Did you get the connecting point there? Luke says explicitly that he's going to do, he will turn the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah. Look, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great day. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children the hearts of children to their fathers. The description then of John the Baptist is he is the forerunner. He is this prophet that is to come. In Matthew then, we get a description of what he looks like. Remember, John doesn't care about this, partly because 
In our day and age, if I say Tom Brady, everyone thinks greatest of all time quarterback, no matter your preferences, no matter if you're a Philly fan today or you're a Kansas City fan. The truth is Tom Brady at this moment is the greatest of all time quarterback in the NFL is what the most people would say. If I say Tom Brady today, most of you know who he is. Yeah, shake your head at me. That's fine. Ben Roethlisberger's right up there too. Maybe Kenny Pickett. <laughs> blasphemy. No, we're not blasphemy there. I mean, Lamar Jackson, if I'm stating that, let's go be real. But if I say the name, we all know, we can understand who that is. It's the same day when John is writing his gospel, he is saying John the Baptist, and everybody knows instantly who he is. He's the hero. He is this prophet. He was known. He was a celebrity before there was celebrities. He was a million follower Instagram person, celebrity influencer. Everybody knows him. Everybody's aware of him. We aren't, because it's written 2,000 years after we're looking back. So Matthew goes in to describe him. In Matthew 3, it says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. So literally, in the sticks, beyond the sticks, and saying, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. For he is the one who has spoken through the prophet Isaiah, who said, A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. John himself had a camel hair garment, with a leather belt around his waist. His food was locust and wild honey. He ate bugs. Then people from Jerusalem and all of Judea and all the vicinity of the Jordan were flocking to him. And they were baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. So this guy is kind of out of his mind. He's in the sticks. And as he's in the sticks, he's dressed in a camel skin kind of robe. So you imagine if you, the procedure for, you know, camel passes, you take the animal hair, you wrap in a robe, you're not dressed like me and you today. He's probably not even dressed as the religious leaders of the day, which would have had nice robes, nice turbans on their head, and they would have been clean shaven. They wouldn't have been clean shaven, sorry. They would have had a beard, full beard, but it wouldn't have been probably... They probably would have been groomed. You probably would have had hair groomed. You wouldn't have had long hair down to your ankles. And yet that's John, that he's in the wilderness. He probably doesn't smell the greatest. He's probably sleeping out there in a tent or on something. And everyone's flocking to him. He doesn't have this great building. He doesn't have this great church. He doesn't have the great smelling. He doesn't have all the followers. He's not even posting anything anywhere because there is nothing to post and post anywhere. And people are coming to him in droves, and they're coming to him to repent, and he's saying, and he's calling them out, and they're coming, and they're repenting, and they're baptizing. What is John doing? Well, he's preparing them. Now, these are good law-abiding citizens of, of Israel. These are good men and women of Jewish faith who follow the Torah, who follow the old law code, and he's calling them to repentance. He's saying, you have issues, and he's preparing them. And so John, when he starts about this witness, he says very clearly that in verse 6 of chapter 1, now we're back in John, there was a man named John who was sent from God. He came to the witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light who gives light to everyone was coming into the world. This is John's testimony, and he doesn't explain it. And then we learn, okay, he's this forerunner. He is in the frame of Elijah. He is not Elijah himself. But he's to turn the hearts of the, of the sons to their fathers. And so these priests, these Levites, as I mentioned last week, they're coming from Jerusalem because the megachurch there is saying, you are preaching and you are doing things, and I'm not sure we like what you're doing. 
And so they come to investigate, who are you? What have you done? Where did you get your credentials? Which seminary did you go to? Which Bible college did you go to? Did you go through the Torah? Did you actually make all your marks? Did you memorize enough scripture? Did you do all? And they come and they ask him, who are you? And then he'd say, this is awesome, that you have men and women coming and repenting and turning to God, which was the point of the Pharisees at this time in this day and age, they were trying to do that. So as much as the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they do get a bad rep and they should get a bad rep. They were also trying to be separate out, to live for God. And so he did not refuse to answer, it says in verse 20, but he declared, I am not the Messiah. What then they asked, are you Elijah? I am not, he said, are you the prophet? No, he answered, who are you then? They asked, we need to give an answer to those who sent us. What can you tell us about yourself? And John won't answer him. They ask, is he Elijah? He says, no. He could have claimed the title. He knows who he is. The truth is, that first point, if you're taking notes, love mercy, seek justice, walk humbly with your God. That's all John is doing. Excuse me. (coughs) And what he's doing is he's trying to point them back to God. All the title is there. The priests are coming. We got the circuit. If you claim to be Elijah, we're going to put you on the circuit. You're going to get Stadiums filled with people. You're going to get the celebrity status, celebrity pastor. You're going to have it all. And he's saying, nope, I'm not him. Are you the prophet? Are you the coming Messiah? Which he's not, and he knows this. No, who are you then? And he answers them kind of in code. He said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, just as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had seen and sent some of the Pharisees. So they asked him, why then? Why do you baptize if you aren't the Messiah or Elijah? Again, baptism was really made for, it wasn't needed for the Jews at this point. There was ceremonial washing, but this is different. He is saying, okay, repent and be baptized. Repent, kind of like the ceremonial side, except they're saying, but you're not the prophet. You're not the main guy. So why are you telling these people they have to be baptized? And he goes, I baptize with water, John answered them. Someone stands among you, but you don't know him. He is the one coming after me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to untie. All this happened in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. And what John is saying, I'm, I'm just doing water. I'm just prepping you. I'm pointing you to the coming person. As I mentioned last week, the, the whole issue with feet in the Middle East, it, it's a deal. Like, you don't touch feet, you don't look at feet. Like, that's, that's a big issue. And especially at this period of time where you wore mostly sandals on your feet and the roads were not paved, they were dirt, they were dust. It's also the main thoroughfare for your animals. And so what would go on in this period is if you were a Pharisee, you were a rabbi, you didn't go to necessarily seminary. A rabbi came into town, went to the local synagogue, the local school, and said, who are the young men? Who are the ones that are cream of the crop? And they would say, come follow me. And you would follow this rabbi and mimic them, teach, do everything, kind of like an intern, unpaid internship. So you'd fetch the coffee, you'd fetch the meals, you'd do all these things. So abuse was rampant at that time, but there was a line that could not be crossed. The line being crossed was you couldn't have the lowest of low untie your sandals. And so in that case, what would go on is as you went into a house, you would wash your feet. Coming in from the summer heat, what's better than a wash? wash on your feet. When I'm, my feet stink in the summer, they get sweaty in the summer. But if you find a cold crick and you stick your feet in the summer, there's nothing more than relaxing and cool. Ah, 
your temperature comes down. It feels good to have the water rush on your feet. Likewise, in Jewish custom, when you went to a house, you would then wash your hands and you would bring a bowl and a basin and you would let them wash their feet. Well, the servants did that. And only the Gentile servants did that. You couldn't make a Jewish person actually wash someone's feet because it was no-no. And John is saying here, I'm unworthy to even untie his sandals, which was the lowest of low rungs. I'm unworthy of that. And he's pointing yet again, he could have claimed the title. And yet he chooses not to claim the title of Elijah. He could have. He doesn't. He keeps pointing back to there is somebody else. There is someone more important than me. He is just doing exactly what it says on the screen, loving mercy, seeking justice, and he's walking humbly. That's called faithfulness. He doesn't have the bandwagon. He could. He's got all the people flocking to him, and I have no idea why. He doesn't look the greatest. He doesn't smell the greatest. And yet all he is doing is doing the right thing, and he's being obedient to God. And then it says, all this happened in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. John also doesn't describe uh, Jesus' baptism, which you read in Luke and Matthew. It says, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward them. More than likely, this is happening after the baptism, after Jesus' temptation. It said, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one who I told you about. After me comes a man who has surpassed me because he existed before me. And that's the phrase you can highlight, circle, or underline. He existed before me. And what he's saying, Jesus, this Lamb of God, who if you look at the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, you look at Passover Lamb, that's him. He is going to be the one who's going to take away the sins of the world. And the highlight for you, if you, verse 30 is that he existed before me. In verse 31, he does this. I didn't know him. But I came baptizing with water so he might be revealed in Israel. I didn't know him. How does John not know him? For the record, if you read the story, you read that John is actually a cousin of Jesus. Did you know that? That John is actually six months older than Jesus. John knows Jesus, who he is. They're relatives. They probably would have had family meals together. They probably would have had holidays together. And he sees him and he points him out. And he says, I didn't know him. But I came baptizing with water so he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I watched the spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he rested on him. So John is saying, here's my testimony. I saw the dove. I saw the heavens open up when I baptized him, and the dove descended on him. I didn't know him. Here's the key. You want to highlight, circle this in your Bibles. This is a cool part. He says, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me. He who sent me, talking about God the Father here, told me this, that the one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He's the one. And he's saying right there, you got the Trinity. God the Father speaking to John the Baptist, saying the Son who you see, the Holy Spirit is who he's going to baptize with. John says in verse 34, I have seen and testified that he is the Son of God. He testifies. He points not to himself, not to his following, not to look at me and my abilities. He goes, no, let me point you to who you need to be pointed to. Let me show you who he is, and he is the Lamb of God. He takes away the sins of the world. This is what I was told. This is my story. Now let me share my story with you. We don't need a teacher, an example, a healer, or religion. That's the point that John is making. We don't need these things. What we need actually is a redeemer, 
The reality is that when we get redeemed, we're given a voice. And it's that voice that we choose to do. What are we going to do with that? You read in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, we're a new creation in Christ. We're also then called God's ambassadors, meaning we're his hands, we're his feet, that an ambassador represents a country or a brand ambassador represents a brand. It's all over the sports, sports world. It's all over the influence world if you're on Twitter and tweeting and all that. Is these people will promote and push certain brands because they're brand ambassadors, meaning they represent the brand. So if you like the person, you'll buy the brand. And what God is saying is that we are his ambassadors the moment we become to know Christ. And so what we say, what we do, how we think, how we react are all reflecting. And we have a voice in the matter. God has given us a voice. And we have two concerns that we need to watch out for. One is having a platform. And you can say, well, Nick, you got a platform. Yes, I'm a pastor. I talk. I have a big mouth, and I do talk, and I have lots of stories and lots of ideas, and if you get around me, I'll share all those stories. But that's a danger in and of itself, is having a platform, because with that goes responsibility. You have influence. You have ability to communicate to people. You, have, you say things, and people actually listen. And you know how scary it is when I email people or talk with people, and they take my advice, and they go do it? And I'm like, well, they actually listened, and they actually did it. And I'm like, well, I know it was good. I prayed about it, but goodness, what, the res- what responsibility. The first time I ever preached, I had froze for a few seconds of just realizing the magnitude of I'm opening God's word and I'm presenting it and ever people are listening to me. Boy, I hope I get it right. And so that's the due diligence. And so the two dangers is one of having a platform. The second danger is thinking we need a platform. Some of us have it. And other of us don't and think we got to compare and we have to have it. And here is John the Baptist who has the greatest platform. Thousands are flocking to him and he could have taken it, opportunities knocking and run with it. And he doesn't. He just points them back to somebody. He keeps pointing away from himself and back to the Savior. He's doing his part in the world. He's called to be the forerunner, to present, to prepare the people for the Savior. That's his whole whole identity, whole purpose. And he says, I can have this great platform, this great ministry, but I don't want it. The opportunity is there, and I'm not going to take it. Instead, I'm going to point you back to Jesus. I'm going to stay humble and true. I'm just going to be faithful. And you think about that in our own lives, and some of us can think, well, I don't have the greatest job. I don't do the greatest things. I don't make that great of an impact. And you know what? You do. It's the day in, day out. We all want to look and compare, well, they do this and they do that. Yeah, you don't want the problems they have at the same instance. And yet you're divinely equipped for just where God has called you to do. Do you settle? No, you don't settle. But you live with where you're at. And sometimes that's called to be a stay-at-home parent. Sometimes that's called to just do the blue-collar work or the farm work. Sometimes that's called to be a nobody who no one knows their name, but you consistently do the right thing. And God says, that's faithfulness. And that's what I've called you to do. Be my ambassador. Love, what is that? Love, mercy, seek justice. All that means is to be right where you're planted, to bloom where you're planted. If that means that you're a CEO of some massive company, awesome. If that means you're a stay-at-home mom, awesome. If that means you're a banker, if that means you're a garbage collector, if that means you're a pastor or whatever, Right where you're at, you do your role right there because you have influence right there with the moms around you. Some of you are stay-at-home moms like my wife is. You have great influence on your kids, on growing them up, on other moms and other families. 
I can't do what I do if my wife wasn't at home raising our kids like she does. Yes, I still play a very active role, but it would not be what it is if she wasn't there. And likewise, John is saying, I could have all the platform in the world, and yet I'm going to point him right back to Jesus, that he was who he says he was. He's been in the beginning. In verse 36, he writes this, and again, the next day, John, so another day, standing with two of his disciples. So John is standing at the picture, and he's, he's there. He's got two of his disciples huddled around him. These are important disciples. I'll share who they are in a minute. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. So now he's told the crowd, look, the Lamb of God. Then he's just standing there. He's huddled up with his two, and he sees Jesus coming, and he says, look, Lamb of God. And he points to them, and he points, and, he, and if you want to highlight that verse and write number one, that would be very important because he's saying something here. When he saw Jesus passing by, look, the two disciples, verse 37, heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. They heard what he said, and instead of staying with John, they start to go after Jesus. When Jesus turned and noticed them following him, he asked them, what are you looking for? Who are, what are you doing? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Verse 39, come and you'll see, he replied. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about 10 in the morning. It was actually really 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Depends on your translation there. It's more likely at 4 and so what he is here, he's saying, come and see. Come just see, come be around me. So they go with him and they sit with him and they listen to him. And in verse 40, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John and followed him. His first, he first found his own brother, Simon, and told him, we have found the Messiah. So we know one of the two is the brother of Peter, who, is, who he's referring to here, Simon Peter. So Andrew is number one. Andrew just goes to his brother and says, hey, come with me. Just come look at this. We found the Messiah. So who is that other disciple that's in here? He remembers the exact time. He's the author of this book. It would be John. He was with John the Baptist. And he points out, John the Baptist points out, there's Jesus. And he remembers the time that this took place, when this happened, and Andrew found his brother, and he said, come, we found the Messiah, which means the anointed one, and he brought Simon to Jesus, not a name for Peter. When Jesus saw him, he said, you are Simon, son of John, you'll be called Cephas, which means rock. What is that about? I don't know. They come, they sit with Jesus, it's four o'clock in the afternoon, they're convinced by the end of it, John and Andrew, this is, the, this is him. So what does Andrew do? Well, he goes and evangelizes. The first person he evangelizes is his brother. He just says, you've got to come see. This is, this is the Messiah. And he drags him along to say, just come with me. Just come with me. And that's kind of the point here is the offer of the invitation to just join you. What did John do? He pointed. He just walked faithfully and kept pointing people to Jesus. Andrew is here with John, and he sees Jesus, and they experience Jesus. And they say, Peter, you've you got to come you got to just taste and see. Would you just come with me? So many times in our life, in our world, we get to this point where we're like, okay, I'm a Christian, but how do I share my faith? I'm a Christian, but I'm not going to know all the answers. So what if they have this question? What about Jesus' divinity? What, was he fully God? Was he fully man? What is substitutionary atonement? What is penal substitution? What are all these justifications? I don't know these terms. I don't know. I don't, what's cosmological argument? What's the systematic theology? What? You know, half the time people don't ask those questions. When they do, they finally talk to me and they say, hey, how do you talk about this? What does this mean? 
Most people just want to be invited. Most people just want to be with you. You know, the Gen Z generation right now is much less about, I'm a millennial, so I know we have a bad reputation. We're all about me. But the millennials have some good things going for them. We're all about the experience. We like the fog machine. We like the lasers. We went to college because we wanted the experience. Didn't matter how much it cost. It's why they're paying us to not, you know, pay off our loans, all that fun stuff. We wanted the experience. Zs are not like us. They're the generation below me. The Zs are all about hard work and effort. And they want to see what is up here on this stage. Is it real? Is it genuine? I don't care if it's the greatest sounding music band. I don't care if they're the greatest speaker. What I do care about if I'm a Z is I care that they're real. That what they're claiming to speak about and talk about, they actually live it out. That's what they want. That's what the Zs want. And so they want to taste and see. Millennials want the experience. Zs want to just come. And most people, just bring them with you. You don't actually have to have the answers. One of the greatest answers I tell small group leaders, I told my youth leaders over the years, I tell people, I don't know. That is a fair answer. Because sometimes we don't know and we're all worried about, I'm not going to have the answers. And Andrew just doesn't care. He says, look, we found them. You just got to come see. Just come with me. Just come sit in church with me. Come sit in group with me. Come sit in the get to know class. Just come sit with me and get around it and just see. That's the greatest thing you can. It's just the offer. What can they say? No? Okay. So what? but we're worried that we don't going to have the answers. And Andrew doesn't have all the answers. He just says, we found him. I'm pretty sure it's him. Why don't you just come see? And Peter's probably coming full of doubts, full of understanding of, because Peter, as we read more about Peter, we're going to read, he always sticks his foot in his mouth. He always has an answer for everything. And yet he's curious. And since Andrew vouched for it, he says, I'll, I'll investigate. And Jesus says, you are Simon, son of John. You'll be called Cephas, which means rock, and Jesus says later to Peter, upon this rock, I'll build my church. Peter becomes his great spokesperson, and he also goes through his own trials that we'll get through in later periods. That was number one. In verse 43, it says this, the next day he decided to leave for Galilee. So Jesus found Philip, and he told him, follow me. Phil's pretty easy. Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Phil found Nathaniel. Now, Phil just follows Jesus says, come follow me, kind of like a rabbi would do. He'd find the guy, say, come follow me. He just gets up and goes. Says, well, okay, I'm in. Doesn't take a lot of convincing. He's with him. But part of Phil, I think, with the issue with Phil is he's from Bethsaida, which means Fisher Town or Fisher Village, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Andrew and Peter are already on board with this now. And he's probably hurt. It's, it's not some huge town with thousands of people. You're talking maybe a few hundred people. Everybody knows everybody. And so he crosses over, and he goes to Bethsaida. He decides to leave for Galilee, which is a northern region. Phil was there, and Phil was in Bethsaida, and, Peter found, and Philip found Nathaniel. Now, Nathan is a little different story. And Nathan had told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law. And so did the prophets, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Now, here's the thing. We've had two examples where John the, the Baptist points people through his preaching. The second one is Andrew just bringing him with him. Phil has kind of had the opportunity here to just be called right down, if you want to highlight that in verse 43. He's called by Jesus. But here's the point, the last one, if you're taking notes, the equipping, empowering people to be able to encounter Jesus. You have this conversation that takes place with Phil and Nate. And Phil finds him, and he told him that this is who we found, Jesus of Nazareth, which 
he probably would have known who Jesus of Nazareth was. He's the son of Joseph and Mary. He's the carpenter. And he's from Nazareth, which is a key moment. Verse 46, this is probably some of us here. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathaniel asked. He asked the random, not the random question, but the, the question everyone's asking about. And I grew up in Pittsburgh. And if you're watching from Pittsburgh, please excuse me. There's a place called Friendship. It's not friendly. Don't go there. It's a hard place to live. It's lots of issues, lots of crime. It is probably the worst place to live in Pittsburgh. That's kind of what is, he's going on here. He's saying, Nazareth, that cesspool of a place? Are you kidding me? Can anything really good come? He's got already a racist undertone bias towards this place because he has seen, and, and reality is it's a generalization. Same as I say friendship in Pittsburgh is not the place to live. That's generalizing it. I've never lived there, but I've heard about it. I have seen the product of it, and therefore I make a judgment call upon it. It's the same way here. Nazareth has this awful reputation for whatever reason. Jesus is coming from Nazareth. You can't be serious. Can anything good possibly come from this cesspool of a place? And this is what I love about Phil. And just what we said at the last point too, which is this. Phil answered, just come and see. He doesn't try to validate Nazareth. He doesn't try to validate Jesus. He doesn't try to do any of that and defend him. He doesn't need defending. He just says, come and see. Nate, you know, you know me. Just, just come see this guy that has come from Nazareth. I'm telling you, he's it. Then Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, here is a true Israelite. No deceit is found in him. Nathanael asked, how do you know me? So he has said something, Jesus directly has said to Nathan, something about his character right here. Here's a true Israelite, no deceit, high compliment. And Nathanael's like, wait, wait, how do you know me? I've never, I, I know who you are, but I don't know you. There's that difference there. You know a lot of people by name, but you don't really know them. And Jesus said, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, Jesus answered, Rabbi Nate said, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel, which again, for you and for I, we read that and we think, well, that didn't take a whole lot of convincing for Nathaniel. If he was so rubbed against the whole Nazareth issue, how did he turn so fast? A couple reasons. One is the character that Jesus called him. Here is a true Israelite. No deceit has found him speaking to who he is. Then he says, well, you were also studying under a fig tree, which literally, figuratively speaking, he probably was. And so he saw what he was doing before he's even come to him. One commentator writes this about this whole incident. Under the fig tree, I saw you. It is possible Nathaniel liked to pray and meditate upon God and his word under the shade of an actual fig tree. Yet under the fig tree was a phrase rabbis used to describe meditation on the scriptures. We can suppose that Nathaniel spent time in prayer and meditating on the scriptures. Jesus told him, I saw you there. It is said of Rabbi Hassa in the tract of the Bereshith that he and his disciples were in the habit of studying under a fig tree. Perhaps it was a place where Nathaniel had recently sat in meditation, received some spiritual impression. It is impossible to be sure. Certainly the shady foliage of a fig tree made it a suitable case. It goes on further with that, and we'll get there in a moment. So he's read scripture. He's meditating under a fig tree. Jesus calls exactly what has happened. He's just, his eyes start to open and he starts to realize what is going on. He says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus responded to him, do you believe only because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? 
Here's the cool part that I didn't realize until after I started studying this. You will see greater things than this. Then he said, I assure you, you will see the heavens open, the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And some of you may be familiar with, again, Bible study. You've been in church. You've been in Sunday school. There's an old one called Jacob's Ladder in Genesis. And in Genesis, the premise is Jacob is running. He's looking for a bride, but he's running from his brother Esau because he stole a birthright. You can read all about that in Genesis. But as Jacob is leaving, God makes a covenant promise with him. And he meets him in the middle of the desert. And Jacob ends up sleeping on a rock. But in the dream, heavens open. And there's a ladder. And the angels are ascending and descending up and down this ladder. And it's the promise and the covenant that God is making with Jacob that he will be the forerunner, pretty much, of the nation of Israel. That the covenant that was promised to his great-granddaddy of Abraham is coming to him and his offspring. Okay, so keep that in mind commentator goes further with this. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, Jesus promised Nathan, a greater sign than he had ever seen. Jesus' announcement of the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man probably connects with the dream of Jacob in Genesis 28, where Jacob saw a ladder from earth to heaven and the angels ascending and descending. Jesus said he was that ladder. He was the link between heaven and earth And when Nathan came to understand that Jesus is the mediator between God and man, it would have even been a greater sign. Not only did God call him for his character, call him for what he was studying, he probably was meditating on that exact passage, and Jesus is just blowing his mind. You were that link. He now learns that Jesus is the real ladder by which the gulf of heaven and on earth is bridged. This seems like rather obscure reference, but it's extremely meaningful to Nathan, probably the very portion of Scripture that Nathaniel meditated on, and it validates Jesus to him. And you have four different kind of scenarios here, four ways that people have come to know Christ. This whole equipping and empowering people, that's our role. As a church body, that's what we're called to do, to equip and empower. Equip, pointing them, giving them the tools to find it, giving them the ability to come, empower them, giving them the encouragement to do it, to encounter Jesus. Your job is not to save people. My job is not to save people. It's to point people back to him, to give them the tools to show that it is real. John preaches. It's not about me, never about him. It's always about Jesus. He always points away from him. Peter comes to Jesus because his brother brings him. Phil comes because Jesus, because of a direct call. That happens too to people. Jesus just speaks or Jesus just does something. They're in. And the fourth is Nate has a personal encounter with the living God. He's skeptical, but he comes, and he has this personal encounter with the living God, and he believes. And all four witnesses, they testify. John declares he's the eternal one. Andrew declares he's Jesus. He's the Messiah, the Christ. Phil says he's the promised prophet, and Nate declares he's the Son of God. He's it. They're all witnessing. They're all pointing. John says, I've written this so that you may believe. I'm pointing that he is it, You've got four eyewitnesses, four people are saying in different verbiage and different things, he's it. Every manner you could possibly think that you're going to connect with, John is placing on paper to say, bring people, point them to people, point them back to Jesus, because it's not about us. We don't need a teacher. None of them said, we found this great teacher. None of them said, we found a great example of someone to follow. We don't need that. Not a healer, not a religion, a redeemer. We have found the one. We have found God's son. We have found the Messiah. We have found the savior of the world, the lamb of God. 
And we're given a voice the moment we're redeemed. It's a question of what will we do with our voice? Will we use it to point people back to Jesus, as John did, as these disciples did at each point, without, don't worry about the answers. And if you're worried about the answers, they ask questions, just bring them to me, and I'll try to answer the questions the best I can. It's just bringing people with you. It's just saying, why don't you just come and see about this place, this church I go to, about this God who will meet you where you're at. I'll walk with you through it. I may not have all the answers, but I'm willing to walk with you through life. That's what John does. Our role, love mercy, seek justice, and walk humbly with our God. We model, we live it, we're faithful. And faithfulness isn't glamorous. It's just doing the right thing where God has called you to the season of life he's called you in. Sometimes you're like, well, I'm not doing anything. Like I'm stuck in this rut. Well, sometimes God has you in a place to just sit. So I'm sitting. Why have I been sitting? Because I've, I can't get healthy for some reason. December, I had shingles and, and gotten sick, and so my immune system's down. And I preached on Psalm 23 on January 1st. You know what Psalm 23 says in there? I lead you beside still waters. I make you lie down in green pastures. And sometimes in the season of life you find yourself in, you just have to sit. And as much as I like to run and move and go, I got to move a little slower right now. And it's the same way for some of us in life. Where are you at? Sometimes it's like, well, I'm not doing anything for God. No, you are doing something. You're being faithful with right where he's called you. Sometimes you just need to slow down. And we run at such a high rate of speed in our lives and all the things that when we finally slow down or have a little quiet, we almost go stir crazy because we don't know what to do. And sometimes it's just sit. Because in Psalm 23, the point of God making the lamb lie down in green pastures is because if they don't, they will walk right by the green pasture and never eat. So they have to be told to sit, to digest, to bring them beside the still waters. Why? Because the running water, they would go in and they could sink. They'd get too heavy. But still waters, they weren't afraid of it. They would drink. And so he leads them and he guides them to sometimes just sit. Some of us may find our own lives there that we need to just sit with it, not do anything, sit in the presence. Sometimes it is going after people and saying, just come with me. Look, I don't have all the answers. I'm going through this, but I know where hope's found. And yeah, I haven't had an answer for all this, but I know where hope is found. I know where peace is found. Jesus always referred to himself too at this point, this phrase, son of man, why? Because it was free of every political statement of the day. In Daniel chapter 7, you can read about that. It's referencing that the Son of Man is the King of glory who judges the world. That's declared in Daniel. So who does Jesus declare? He's the King of glory. He's the King of the world. But Son of Man had no political messianic undertones that would rally a nationalistic fever. So Jesus always again himself pointed back to, I'm not here to, to do the political side. I'm not here to do what you want in the world. I'm here for separate. I'm here for God's kingdom. For everlasting help takes place, where there's hope found, where the Savior of the world and redemption is found. And that's what all of these points, all of these four characters point to. It's Jesus. It's always about him. It will always be about him. Why do I point him to Jesus? That's my role. That's my goal all week. Every Sunday is to point back to Jesus. That's where hope is found. That's where life is found. That's where peace is found. And the call for us then is to, if we know that, is to love mercy, seek justice, walk humbly with God. There's a whole concept with justice we don't have time to go into, but it's being faithful. 
To summarize that, it's being faithful right where God has you in this season, preparing for what is ahead, learning, not asking, okay, why, why do I have to go through this? Why, why, why? It's more of what? What, God, in this season are you teaching me? What, God, are you showing me? What, God, are you revealing to me? And who do I need to bring with me in this season? Be thinking about that. Who are the people God has placed you around who maybe you need to share the good news with or just say, come join me? I don't know the answers. I really don't know how to explain this. Just come with me. They'll explain it. The church will do the job, but you come with me. You want to hear a little bit more on John 2 of the first miracle of Jesus where he says, I'm it. You can go to YouTube. I preached on it. Where's your joy found? That's really the premise of 2, the first part of chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. We're going to skip that one and move on to chapter 3 next week. But let me pray this morning and we'll go out. Lord God, we are grateful to be gathered here. Lord, in your, we're not here on our own account, but we're on here for what you have done because of Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, that it always points to him. It is always about him and what he has done. And so we are grateful, God, that we get the opportunity to worship you this morning in spirit and truth, both through song, but also in our words, through the message. Lord, that you have called us to be to equip people, to empower others, to walk out and live out their faith, but also to share the truth. So Lord, wherever we are find ourselves, whoever you have placed us around that we may need to share with or just say, come with me, would you reveal that to us this morning? Would you allow us an opportunity, Lord, to, and to see that opportunity before us in a way that we haven't seen before to convict our hearts and our souls? Who do we need to talk with? To not beat over the head, but maybe just walk through life to share our own story with May we have the courage to do that, Lord. And at the same instance where we find ourselves weak, may you give us strength. Where we need wisdom, would you give us wisdom? And would you just, those of us here, Lord, who are just on that fence with you, are you really God's son? Did you really come and die? Would you reveal yourself, whether it's by just showing up week after week to hear the message, whether it's through this week of someone's encouragement or just you revealing to them that you are son of the most high God, that you came and loved us so much that you died on a cross for us. But you didn't stay dead, Lord. You rose, you defeated death, and give us an opportunity for life everlasting with you if we simply but confess our need for you. So may we do that this week. Those of us who have walked with you for a long time, Lord, may we continue to walk with you and be strengthened in our faith, encouraged to go out. We ask for your blessing this day in Jesus' name. Amen.